It is so good to be back with you. I've had a very restful vacation, excited about a brand new series we're starting today called Marriage Rescue. And today's message I'm calling to Helen back. If you would, just bow your heads with me. Let's get started with prayer. Father, we are very grateful that we have this time together to gather around your truth, around your word, around a very challenging topic. I pray that in this moment that each of us would just be attentive to you and the things that you want to speak into our life. I pray, God, that you'll help me to convey not just what's in my head, but also what's in my heart. I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, I'm not aware of any other area of life that routinely sets higher levels of expectations for people than marriage. And I'm also not aware of any area of life where those same expectations are more routinely dashed than in marriage. You know, if you've ever wondered what went wrong, did I marry the wrong person? Did they change? Did I change? Is this normal? Is this permanent? Is it fixable? Is it worth the effort to even try? If you've ever wondered about any of those questions, this message is for you. Let me also say, maybe you're not married, and maybe you have no intention of ever getting married. Please, don't check out on this series over the next six weeks, because great relationship principles apply to all relationship. There's tremendous benefit in these messages for single people and married people. That's because God made you for relationship, not just with him, but with other people. To get the most out of relationship, we need to understand what gets in the way and how to make all relationships better. Also, let me just say right up front, my heart breaks for people who are caught up in a relational nightmare right now. I know how confusing and painful that can be. I, I've been there, done that, hated every minute of it. It could be that some of you are watching this service right now and you're afraid. You're afraid that I might say something that would make you feel judged about a relationship failure or even a divorce. Please know, I understand that some relationship breakdowns are inevitable. And even though it only takes one to forgive, it takes two to reconcile. And without two willing people, one person on their own cannot save a relationship. But I'd also be remiss in my duty as a pastor if I didn't try to prevent as much of that heartache as I possibly can. So let me just begin with my own story. Brenda and I met my first year in college in Nashville, Tennessee. She was a sophomore. I was a freshman. We used to sit next to each other in chapel. Brenda and I talked a lot that year, and I was engaged to a girl back home. Over the course of that first year, I learned a lot about Brenda, like how she became a Christian in high school, but before becoming a Christian, she was pretty wild. Now, you would think that if you had a kid who was really throwing their life away and they became a Christian and stopped doing all those things that were harmful and dangerous, you'd be pretty happy that kid had changed, but not Brenda's folks. Not only did they turn on her when she became a Christian, but she was pretty much emotionally and verbally abused most of her life. She knew from a young age that to be accepted at home meant to squelch who she was. You weren't allowed to have an opinion of your own. Love was only given when the right conditions were met, and that wasn't very often. Anytime she displeased her parents, she'd be given the silent treatment for days and sometimes weeks on end. When she finally left home at 18, she vowed never to return to live there again. My home was not nearly so turbulent. In fact, I thought I grew up in the great American family, you know, the stuff that dreams are made of. Growing up, I never even questioned that. The first real awakening to any significant problems in my family came when I was a sophomore in college, and my mom called me to let me know dad was leaving her for a secretary in his company. 
I can't even begin to describe how devastating that was to me. I felt like everything I'd ever been taught was suddenly up for grabs. Did I even know my father at all? I rushed home to see if I could help save my parents' marriage. Of course, I couldn't, but somehow I felt responsible, so I tried. During that same time period, I was jilted by the girl I'd been engaged to, whom I'd been dating since I was 15 years old. She cheated on me, got pregnant by a married man. So in the period of just a couple of months, the people I thought I could count on for the rest of my life left me floundering in a sea of emotion, both of them wounding me very deeply by infidelity. I was drowning. I was in need of a lifesaver. And pretty soon, there she was, a beautiful five-foot-three brunette lifesaver named Brenda. And I latched onto her like a drowning man. Since Brenda herself had never experienced true love, she interpreted my tight embrace as the real thing. It wasn't long before we were married. But Brenda wanted more than a husband. She wanted a savior. And since there was only one of those, I never quite measured up. So the disappointments for Brenda started to mount up early in the marriage, I grabbed onto a lifesaver who I thought would give me all the attention and affection I lost when my parents split up and my girlfriend jilted me. I needed to be needed. But before long, all of Brenda's attention started to feel like suffocation. So I did everything in my power just to push her away. My disappointments in our marriage piled up too. So a cycle began of closeness and distance, unfulfilled expectations, buried resentments, a lot of anger, and death by a thousand paper cuts. The cycle lasted in our marriage for the first 10 years. It's amazing that we put up with it as long as we did. She would cling to me. I would push her away. Both of us were convinced the other person was the problem. We hurt each other constantly. When our 10-year anniversary rolled around, we didn't even celebrate. There was nothing to celebrate. By now, the pain of our relationship was becoming greater than the fear of being alone. Divorce seemed inevitable. I think we got as close to divorce as a couple can get without actually going through it. I can honestly say we got married for all the wrong reasons. Brenda, to escape a painful home situation and find someone to help make that painful past go away. Me, as a compensation for feeling bad about myself and wanting someone to fill up all the emptiness of my life. Our relationship was based on mutual needing, not mutual caring. Both of us were looking for someone to give us what we'd missed out on in life. But because we were so wounded ourselves, we were incapable of meeting the genuine needs in each other. And that leads me to this. You know you're in trouble when. You know, there's an actual internet site, a a web host, that where people can go and submit their opinions on how to know when your marriage is in trouble. Some of the responses are pretty interesting. One person wrote, marriages are in trouble when you stop talking. Another wrote, marriages are in trouble when you look forward to going to work and dread coming home. Still another wrote, marriages are in trouble when communication and trust are gone. One smart aleck wrote, marriages are in trouble when they occur. Somebody else wrote, your marriage is in trouble when you start reading this website. When your relationship has reached the point where communication and trust are gone, when you dread coming home, when there's abuse or addiction, it's too late to look for signs that you're in trouble you're already in trouble. The marital hurricane has made landfall. So what are some of the early warning signs? Let me give you three. The first one is you have a growing intolerance. In other words, it just takes less and less to set you off. Second, you have a growing alienation. In other words, you're doing more and more to put distance in the relationship. And the third sign, early warning sign of trouble is you have a growing preoccupation. 
That is, you find yourself unable to think about much else but your spouse's issues and hang-ups. So in light of that, one other thing I would add is marriages are in trouble when discussing problems only seems to add to them. Now, every couple is going to have longstanding conflicts, but in a healthy relationship, they don't cause pain. They may cause frustration, but not pain. When conflicts produce pain, what happens is people start shielding themselves emotionally. They build walls of protection. When we become that guarded emotionally, it becomes increasingly difficult to deal with even minor conflict. If you're experiencing any of these things, you're going to have to make a choice, and it's not an easy one. You can either get to the bottom of it or stick a Band-Aid on it. In other words, you can deal with the root of the fruit, the real problem or the symptom. And let me tell you, you may think that answer is obvious, that you got to deal with the root cause. But 99% of what you're going to read about in magazines, see on television, and hear advocated in self-help books are Band-Aid solutions. Like one strategy that's extremely popular is trying to maintain the in-love feeling. A lot of couples think, you know, if we can just hold on to that initial spark that attracted us to one another, then everything will be okay over the long haul. So, you know, let's start going on date nights or, or weekend getaways. And let's rekindle the romantic flame. And there's a certain amount of logic to that line of thinking. I mean, if it were possible to experience the high-octane romance of a relationship for 24 hours a day, seven days a week, there's no question every marriage would probably last till death do us part. But all it really is is an attempt to rekindle infatuation. It may work in the short term. It won't last very long. Because in the end, it takes more and more to achieve less and less until eventually it feels like there's just nothing left. You're trying to manufacture the in-love feeling, but what you're really craving is intimacy. Let me explain something to you. Intimacy is never easy, and neither is it automatic. And the only reason people think intimacy is easy is because in the early stages of a relationship, the distance between two people is wide. Therefore, you move toward one another quickly and easily. So we think that is intimacy. We say things like, you know, I feel like I can talk to them about anything. We talk so easily, I don't want it to end. But it's not covering the wide distance between strangers that's hard. It's getting close and staying close once you know everything about them. That is the challenge of intimacy. By the way, this dynamic is also the reason why so many people get caught up in affairs. Someone begins to show them attention at work. They have conversations over break. They converse so easily but that's simply because they don't know each other. Besides, at one point, they had the same experience with their mate. When you're strangers, it's easy to talk to one another because the distance that separates you is so wide. But because we move quickly toward one another, we confuse that with love. Think of it like this. Healthy relationships are like mountains to climb. There's rocks, there's cliffs, there's huge obstacles that get in the way. Sometimes a climber even has to double back, take another route. It's not always easy, but they keep climbing. Unhealthy relationships are like whirlpools. The love-hate cycle goes round and round with no real advancement, and ultimately, the relationship just goes down the drain. So let's shift gears, and let's talk about why relationships get into trouble. I call this next point relationship saboteurs. You know, Hollywood isn't the only place where scripts are written and acted out. All around the world, men and women are living out the scripts that others have written for them. Our families, our culture, and even our own personality all contribute to the script. Like, for example, each and every one of us has been handed a family script. 
I'm talking about unresolved issues from your past. You know, whenever I read the story of Rebecca and Jacob and Rachel in Genesis chapters 27 through 31, the Old Testament, it's easy to see a common thread running through their lives. Sometime you need to study this out for yourself. Look at how the sins that run through the mother's life not only are evident in the son, but also in the woman he chooses for his wife. It's, it's kind of scary, but that's a prime example of a family script. There's lots of stories in Genesis just like this. You know, I think it's a given that often the people that we're drawn to will possess both the positive and negative characteristic of our parents, which can be a good thing, or as in Jacob's case, a not so good thing. Issues that are unresolved in our life have a way of continuing to play themselves out until they are resolved. Many times we'll unconsciously set up these scenarios in the people we date and eventually marry. It's almost like we have this unhealthy need for the wrong kind of person until we're the right kind of person. As I see it, we tend to draw to ourselves all that we are and all that we won't face about ourselves. So the more wounded we are, the, and especially the more unaware we are of that wounding, the greater the pull toward an unhealthy person. Let me tell you how this happened in me. I was blessed with a mother who believed in me, taught me to believe in myself. I never questioned my mom's love or acceptance of me. She and I talked all the time, even during my rebellious teenage years. Now, with all that love, acceptance, communication, and value being poured into my life, you would have thought that I would have grown up to be a reasonably well-adjusted person with high self-esteem. But the reality is I grew up feeling very unlovable, unacceptable, unable to express my real needs, and feeling like I could never do enough. When my marriage hit the skids, I went to see a Christian counselor. I told him the same thing I just told you. And he asked me one simple question that unlocked a mystery that I'd struggled with for 30 years. He asked, what was your mom's relationship like to your dad? And I told him, well, mom always wanted dad to improve himself, to take some initiative. She wanted him to aspire to be more than just what he was settling for, even if it meant going back to school to get a degree. In short, dad was never quite enough. He never quite measured up. I no sooner got the words out of my mouth that it dawned on me. I had become all the things my mother wanted my father to be. What I had learned about relationship was not from how my mother treated me, which was very kind and loving, but from watching my mother and father's relationship play out before my eyes. Here's the truth. The quality of relationships your children will have will be largely based on the quality of relationship you have as a couple. Like it or not, we've all been handed a family script. My parents did it to me, their parents did it to them, I did it to my children too. No generation of parents has ever escaped this dynamic for good or bad. There are good things for sure that my parents passed on to me. But because no one is perfect, our family script always includes pain. Wounding is real and no one escapes it. I've had to confess things to my own children about how Brenda and I let them down for not being in a good place in our marriage when they were born. The last thing in the world I would ever want is to pretend to be perfect, especially with my kids when they are struggling with the very things I contributed to. So we all get handed a script in life by our family, but that's not the only script being played out in your life. There are also cultural scripts. And here I'm talking about unmet expectation. Listen to the doctors Les and Leslie Parrott. For too long, marriage has been saddled with unrealistic expectations and misguided assumptions. How true is that? 
When our spouse fails to live up to our expectations, we begin to resent them. That leads to feelings of frustration and irritation. We become obsessed with their failure to meet our expectations, but never seem to question whether our expectations are in alignment with reality. Like one of the most persistent expectations out there is that marriage will be an even exchange of effort. Sometimes marriage therapists will even advocate negotiating as the best means for getting your needs met. In other words, if you do this, I'll do that. Like if you come home from work earlier, we'll have more sex. Or if you let me watch the TV without interruption, I'll take the kids to the park on Saturday. This is what a lot of traditional marital therapy is based on. They teach partners bargaining skills. And it works for some people, but more often than not, people just start arguing over who broke the contract first and who's failing to do their fair share. That's what Brendan and I did. Instead of the old fights we'd had for years, we now started fighting over who wasn't holding up their end of the bargain. Here's the problem. If one person makes a change and then waits for their spouse to match their effort, they're already dooming themselves to failure. All that is ever going to be is a power struggle. If you've ever tried to make your marriage work based on negotiating, making contracts, accounting for one another's behavior, I don't have to explain to you the problem with that approach. You already know. Look at this verse from the Message Bible. The marriage bed must be a place of mutuality. The husband seeking to satisfy his wife. The wife seeking to satisfy her husband. Marriage is not a place to stand up for your rights. Marriage is a decision to serve the other, whether in bed or out. Now, what that verse is saying is love has to be a gift, not an exchange. The meeting of your spouse's needs has to be a gift. No strings, no obligations, no contracts, and no exchanges. So the first key to building a healthy love life is to quit focusing on what you're getting and start focusing on what you're giving. Here's the deal. Countless studies have found that marriages oriented around reciprocity are always less successful than those that aren't. Reciprocity is another way of saying, I'll scratch your back if you scratch mine. It's giving to get. If the success of your marriage is based on deal-making, that's always a sign of an unhappy marriage. More often than not, it'll only lead to keeping score. Scorekeeping is when individuals in a marriage begin to keep track of the efforts of their spouse. In other words, they start to make mental lists of all the things they do while keeping another list of all the things their spouse has failed to do. John Gottman, he's been dubbed the Einstein of love by psychology today. He's been studying successful marriages now for decades. He can now predict with 95% accuracy which marriages will succeed and which ones will fail. It shouldn't surprise you to learn that Gottman is totally against making contracts in marriage because of where it leads. He reminds us, we become emotional accountants only when there's something wrong with the relationship. Just the simple fact that I feel a need to spell out your responsibilities in the contract tells me that there's already a low level of trust in the marriage. Because the happiest couples, they give without expecting anything in return. They've learned that they can rely on their partner to operate with their best interest in mind. So the first key to building a healthy love life is to quit focusing on what you're getting and start focusing on what you're giving. Because if both spouses are needy, who's going to meet the needs? Healthy relationships are built on mutual caring, not mutual needing. A third type of script you'll contend with is what I call personal scripts. So these are scripts that are based on personality, and it has a lot to do with underestimated differences. Statistics show that people will not only tend to court and marry opposite temperament types the first time they ever get married or in a relationship, but believe it or not, 
If that marriage fails and there's sufficient recuperation time, 10, 15, 20 years later, that same person will turn around and marry an opposite temperament type again. Why is that? We're fascinated with people who function so differently from the way we do. So we marry our opposite. If one of you is an early riser, the other tends to be a late nighter. If one of you is daring and impulsive, the other tends to be cautious and reserved. In a marriage, there'll be one of you who likes to talk and the other grunts occasionally. One will love to spend money, the other's a tightwad. One will love to cuddle, the other's a porcupine. One of you's neat and organized and on time, the other's flexible, relaxed, and always late. But what happens with opposite temperament types is inevitable. We all experience what's known as the grand reversal, where the characteristics that once drew us to our spouse now bug the living daylights out of us. Let me explain. We are both drawn to and repelled by differences. The grand reversal happens when the characteristics you once loved, you now hate. So she, she used to love the fact that he was determined and unwavering, but she now sees that as emotional coldness. He used to love the fact that she was such a detail person, but now he sees it as a critical spirit and a nagger. Dr. Timothy Keller explained it so well. Let's imagine a couple that was once in love, but they become estranged, which basically means we used to be in love, but we've become strangers. And if you've ever watched how that works, this is how it happens. You were in love, and what made you love, uh, what made you in love with that person was certain characteristics. But when you decide to get angry, you take all those characteristics that you loved, and you read them through the lens of your anger and turn them into flaws. You read the very things you used to love, the very traits, as imperfections and weaknesses. So if you realize you've been handed a script in life by your family, by culture, or even your own personality, then you need to understand those scripts and how they have made you into what you are and maybe even distort what you're seeing in your mate right now. Brenda and I were facing these battles on all three fronts. We were in marriage hell. But I'm reminded of something Winston Churchill once said, which also happens to be my last main point. If you're going through hell, keep going. You know, I've been there. I know what it's like to wonder if your marriage could be saved and wonder even if it could, is it really what I want? Having been there myself, I just want to offer you four things that can and will make a substantive difference in your relationships. Number one is to accept your spouse for who they are. The Bible teaches us, accept one another, then just as Christ accepted you. Before you can ever accept someone as they are, you have to see them as they are. The only one who truly sees us as we are is God. And I've told you before, and I'll tell you again, my spiritual director really challenged me years ago to begin to pray over Brenda. Lord, help me to see Brenda the way you see Brenda, so I can love her the way you love her. Seeing your spouse the way God sees them is the key to acceptance. Look at this verse. Generously make allowances for each other because you love each other. Years ago, I read an article in Psychology Today entitled The Reinvention of Marriage. It was a major study conducted through the University of Michigan about acceptance in marriage. The researchers discovered that acceptance is one of the strongest predictors for having a quality marriage. But what I found most fascinating about this study was this one simple truth, and I quote, when a husband is accepted for the way he is, he winds up doing things her way, and she moves toward his way. Acceptance is so powerful because it completely diffuses the battle of the wills. 
When a spouse feels accepted for who they are, they bend to the other's way. When they're not accepted, they resist. Here's the deal. When we don't accept our mate, what we tend to do is play God in their life. We rob God of his opportunity to work on our spouse's life because we're constantly trying to fix them, repair them, and mold them into the people we think they should be. You know what that actually does? It gives our spouse an excuse to blame us rather than face their own problems or shortcomings. One divorce attorney said it like this, the number one reason people split up is they refuse to accept the fact that they're married to a human being. Or how about this again from the noted Christian therapist doctors Les and Leslie Parrott. By far, the most dramatic loss experienced in a new marriage is the idealized image you have of your partner. This was the toughest myth we encountered in our marriage. So I'm here to tell you, you didn't choose wrong. You didn't. You just chose one imperfect option out of a whole host of other imperfect options. And trading one person's soiled soul for another person's soiled soul is not the answer. All healthy relationships begin with acceptance. We accept one another the way Jesus accepted us. And let me tell you something, friends. When Jesus accepted you, he did so warts and all. Second thing, you need to acknowledge that you're broken. You know what lies at the root of marriage problems? You'll hear a lot of different answers to that question. Incompatibility, dysfunctional patterns of relating, anger issues, money issues, unfaithfulness, poor communication, different interests, inability to commit, fear of failure, sexual problems. It's quite a list. And all those things have some real measure of truth to them. But I want to suggest we can divide all of those problems into two categories. And here are the two categories. Two underlying problems that destroy relationships. We're all wounded and we're all selfish. We're all wounded in that we've been victim of the choices and sins of others. And we're all selfish in that we have been agents of hurt and sin against others ourselves. To one degree or another, each of us has been wounded by our past experiences in imperfect families and by the hurts we've experienced along the way. And those wounds from the past continue to play themselves out in our present, in our relationships until they're resolved and healed. Now, all of us have a selfish bent to our spirit. Self-centeredness is a serious problem, and it's as natural as breathing. It's a human condition, the taproot of of sin. I, I mean, that I think of me before I think of you. Now, over the years, I've talked to a lot of people who are about to get married, and they'll say things like, you know, I just love the way he loves me, or he made me feel so good about myself. And that's all good and fine, but really what they're telling me is what they value most about that person is how they made them feel about themselves. In other words, they're still defining love in selfish terms because it's all about how it makes them feel versus the qualities they love in that person that make them so lovable. To be sinful is to be selfish. That's what it means to be a sinner. It's, it's the ugly side of human nature. So I've got a little selfishness test for you. How many of you throughout this message have been listening to me talk about problem behaviors and relationship and selfishness And we're thinking about somebody else who needs to hear this. Be honest. Now, let me remind you, I wasn't speaking to anyone else but you. This is something God wants to change in you. Not the person seated next to you and not the person who's been running through your mind throughout this entire message. You see, our self-centeredness makes us push this stuff outward. It's hard to feel the weight of our own sin in this area against God and other people. But we need to see selfishness in ourselves. We need to ask God to open the eyes, our eyes, the eyes of our soul, to see ourselves honestly, to admit how much of life is really just about me. Now listen to this. 
the greatest obstacle in building truly great relationships is justified self-centeredness. You see, there's this voice that whispers convincingly in my spirit that there is nothing in this universe that's more important than my needs. And if the meeting of my needs doesn't get first place, then whatever I do in light of that is reasonable, understandable, and excusable. Now, please hear me. It's not that your needs don't matter. They do. It's not that they don't have a place. They do. But that place is not always first place. A third essential in healthy relationships, adapt to a new understanding of marriage. You know, there's a purpose in marriage that goes beyond our immediate satisfaction with our circumstances. God often will use your spouse to bring about needed changes in your life. Now, this is a seismic shift in thinking if you really let yourself hear this. Noted marriage expert Gary Thomas said it like this. What if God didn't design marriage to be easier? What if God had in mind an end that went beyond our happiness, our comfort, and our desire to be infatuated and happy as if the world were a perfect place? What if God designed marriage to make us holy more than to make us happy? You know, one of the greatest things God does through marriage is hold us to the task of personal growth. Because marriage, and for that matter, any really close relationship, brings crud to the surface of your life like few other things ever will. When you finally understand that God has put your spouse in your life for your growth, you don't run away. You see them as a part of the way God is developing you. There's a purpose in marriage that goes beyond our immediate satisfaction with our circumstances. What I'm saying is the world says marriage ought to make me happy. And God says marriage ought to make me holy. And when you hear the word holy, think wholeness, because that's what holiness is all about. It's about being made whole, being healed, being more like what God intended me to be. Now, here's the deal. If your spouse draws out of you some of your worst qualities, divorcing him or her won't remove those qualities from your life. I don't think I'll ever forget what Dr. Bill Flanagan said. He's the guy who pioneered Divorce Recovery Workshop years ago in Southern California. He said, the one person you always get custody of in a divorce is you. Could it be that God right now is trying to tell you something through your spouse? Could it be that you would be a better person if you swallowed your pride and took to heart what they're saying? Just a thought. The final thing we all need for healthy and satisfying relationships, admit when you need help. The Bible says in Jeremiah, you can't heal a wound by saying it's not there. Do you know that the average couple will wait six years after serious issues arise before getting help with their marital problems? And by then, it's often too late, which is why this next statistics also makes sense. Half of all divorces occur within the first seven years of marriage. A study published in the Journal of Consulting and Clinical Psychology found that uh, was talking about people who, who seek counseling and therapy. And when they realize they have a problem, they can't fix on their own. But this is what they discovered in the U.S., the dropout rate when it comes to counseling is between 40 to 60%. What's even more troubling is the overwhelming majority of those who do drop out do so after just two sessions. Once again, the Bible says and experience confirms that the way of a fool seems right to him, but a wise man listens to advice. Want to make foolish mistakes over and over again in your relationships? Do, just do whatever seems right to you. And chances are you'll become another statistic. Wisdom is different. Wisdom says there are people out there who have great marriages. What is that husband doing that I'm not doing? What's that wife doing that I don't? How do they handle this issue? 
Wisdom says there are people who've given their lives to the study of what makes marriages work. They write books about it. They lead seminars. They offer therapy. I'm going to learn from them all that I possibly can. You know, it took me 10 years before I admitted I needed help. That was the dumbest thing I ever did. Going to counseling is nothing to be ashamed of. Actually, it's a sign of emotional health. It's a way of saying that you're willing to own your own junk in your life and you're mature enough to go get some help. So go and go with your head held high. You know, it was back in December of 1993. Brenda and I stood in front of the church family, the Spring Creek Church family, and we told our story, warts and all. The story of getting it wrong. story of putting up with 10 years of hurt and pain. The story of waking up to the reality that to do the same thing over and over again, expecting a different result, is the very definition of insanity. In that message, we said, if it ain't getting better, you need help at any price. Going to classes, seminars, listening to sermons on marriage wasn't really helping us. I mean, I get it. When you, when you finally realize you need professional help, few people have unlimited resources to go pay for a counselor or therapist. But honestly, what price tag are you willing to stick on your marriage? When you weigh everything else in your life, is it worth more than your car, your house, a major appliance? I mean, if your refrigerator went out during this Texas heat, you wouldn't think twice about going out, spending a thousand bucks or more on a new refrigerator because you need it. We may not want to spend that kind of money, but we would do it. Is your marriage more important than your refrigerator? You know, 30 years ago, Brenda and I easily spent $2,000 on marriage counseling. I'm sure the cost of marriage counseling has gone up quite a bit, but we didn't have that $2,000. We, 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 we were not... We were barely making it. And during that time, what we did is we diverted a lot of cash to counseling and put a lot of living expenses on the credit card. I mean, thank God for Visa. I could really do a commercial for them, say, Visa card saved my marriage. It's, it's worth whatever price you pay to get the help you need. So you don't go for a bargain, you go for help. Now, we just celebrated our 39th wedding anniversary just a couple months ago. So we're now in our 40th year of marriage. And I can tell you this, I can't imagine how it could get any better than what it is right now. I love my wife so much. She's my friend, my soulmate, my lover, my best time. And if we can come back from the brink, maybe your marriage can too. If we can go from hurting one another to cherishing one another, then relational resurrections are possible. Now, people say this to me all the time. They say, you know, you were so lucky to find a woman like Brenda and have what you all have. Others aren't nearly so lucky. And I just want to say, Luck's got nothing to do with it. First, there's the abundance of the kindness and grace of God that has sustained us through some very tough circumstance. Second, it's been great therapists who spoke truth into our life even when we didn't want to hear it. And third, it took both of us leaning into the hard work that was necessary to build our marriage the right way. I didn't happen into a great relationship. By the grace of God, we created a great relationship. And you can too. And that's my prayer for you today. Would you pray with me? Father, I just want to thank you that we've had this time to talk about life and reality and expectations and family hurts and our personality and how all those things can get in the way of relating to people as they are. God, you've taught us some things along the way that are absolutely underscored in your word about acceptance and admitting our brokenness and, and just this willingness, Lord, to do whatever it takes to, to see the healing happen. And God, I thank you for the miracle of 
what you worked in our relationship and how you brought us back from the brink. I know that won't happen for everybody. I get that. And I'm not trying to put that expectation on people. But when two people are really willing to lean into this, when two people really do the hard work, when two people trust God and his grace to sustain them, even when it looks like there's no way through, when two people are really trying to make it work, then God, I believe there's possibility there. I believe there's hope. So God, I pray for anyone who's just going through a really tough time right now, who can only see the pain that's in front of them, to lift their eyes and to know that it's not just Brenda and I. There's many couples in this church who've gone through similar experiences, who've walked a very dark and lonely path only to emerge on the other side with some real wisdom and understanding about what it takes to make great relationships. I pray, Lord, for those that are beginning to start out, maybe looking for a new chance at love or a first chance at love, that we would understand that, Lord, before we become a healthy we, we have to be a healthy me, that we need to be sure that we've done the work in our life that we need to do so that we are not drawing to ourselves people with the same issues, the same problem, the same pain, and just working out our problems on someone when, God, that person is not the problem. It's the unresolved past we're refusing to face. So, Lord, I pray that during this entire series, God, you will just lead us and guide us and give us hope and give us direction. I pray it all in your son's name. Amen. We are so grateful that you join us today. As always, you know, let us know your comments. Let us know your prayer needs. Uh, if you like today's message, if it helped you in some way, please share it on your social media. It's the greatest compliment you can give us from week to week. God bless you. I hope you have a great week.